Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Coppola Connections, where we plan to shake every branch of the Coppola family tree to find out, are they the greatest film family of all time? On last week's episode, we looked at Francis Ford Coppola's 1974 paranoid thriller, The Conversation. This week, however, we're looking at a little-known branch of the family tree, Christopher Coppola, or as some know him, Nicolas Cage's older brother, and his adaptation of the cult classic Mike Allred graphic novel, Graphic Music, in 2000s. G-Men from Hell. To help me make some couple of connections this week and look at this film is comedian and podcast host Nathaniel Metcalf. I could have happily chatted to Nathaniel all day. In fact, I actually chatted to him for an extra 40 minutes, which you can hear over on Patreon, where we discuss the man who started this podcast journey, Nicolas Cage. To support the podcast on Patreon, head on over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod as is always the case we go into this film in forensic detail so there will be spoilers aplenty so if you haven't seen this film please do be sure to check out a handy document that is in the show notes that will tell you if and where this film is streaming in the uk at the moment i know that this one is on youtube make of that what you will as nobody has taken it down but for now it's time to escape from hell set up a PI business and try to do some good in this goddamn world as we try and make some Coppola connections. On this episode, we're looking at Christopher Coppola's adaptation of Michael Allred's comic, Graphic Music, titled G-Men from Hell. Released in the year 2000, elsewhere in the Coppola family, Christopher's brother Nick starred in both Gone in 60 Seconds and The Family Man, whilst Nick's then-wife Patricia Arquette was helping the devil's son in Little Nicky. To help me figure out if this is cinematic heaven or hell, is comedian, podcaster and co-chairman of FUBAR's premier film-based radio show that's not actually about films, Fan Club. Nathaniel Metcalf, how are you, sir? I'm very well, yeah. I almost had to correct you. I think now we've probably been going long enough that we can probably just say it is about films. Yes. And now we have a guest on and talk to him about whatever. The first <laughs> hour is almost certainly about films. It's I, not really supposed to be, but it, it'll end up being about films regardless of 
whatever else we were talking about. I always love reading the blurb that Fubar put out that kind of says like, oh yeah, it's it's like it's like room one oh one but but opposite people bring in the, the things they love and it's like, no, it's not. It's about John <laughs> John Carpenter and sometimes like Nick will go on a big binge about talking about Adam Sandler films. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it's just that we've made no um we've made no concession to what we would talk about if we weren't on the radio. I think, which I think is good in a way, but at the same time, there's a bit of me going, I mean, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't, is this out? Does this go out? It feels very, um, <laughs> it's very, I don't know, I, it's good. I mean, I like it, but I would. Um, but, um, you know, yeah, it doesn't feel like a proper radio show a lot of the time. It is just us chatting, and there is fair, I mean, in a way, we do it to time and we often try and get back onto the topics we were talking about to begin with, which we probably wouldn't bother with if we're just yeah. talking in a pub. But we don't even have pubs now. or um, <laughs> And in and the time we've done it, and, and since lockdown, Nick's currently um, possibly permanently, possibly not, but he's, he's stopped drinking for now. So it means even if we do get back to pubs, we're all on soft drinks again now. So I guess... Um, Perfect. But, we, but we've gone through changes. We're going through changes. <laughs> Well, before we get into talking about this film, and uh, well, there's a lot, lot to talk about, let's be honest. Um, when did you first become aware of the Coppola family as, as, an, as an entity? I was trying to think of this. I have no idea, because I, I think I sort of always knew. I'm, I'm 41, and it is currently early 2021. Um, I was born in 79, and... I was trying to think what what would have been the first like I I knew for example who Francis Ford Coppola was for sure when The Godfather three came out mm -hmm. and I also knew I think um, uh, that I would have known probably like I kind of probably got into films in a big way in my sort of mid teens. Mm -hmm. But then I was already watching lots of stuff, and I think I already knew who they were and who he was, even though I probably wouldn't have seen a lot of his films at the time. And I kind of knew, and I knew things, yeah, I knew, for example, like, I knew that Nicolas Cage was his nephew, I knew that. And um, uh, even though it took me a while to figure out why he was called Cage then. Why is he called Cage then? <laughs> why is he called Cage? That was probably the last bit of the penny to drop. Uh, it should, shouldn't have taken that long. Um, uh, so I knew things like that. And I, yeah. I don't know what the, the specific... I remember, but it could have been late 80s, early 90s. I remember once Peggy Sue Got Married was on TV and knowing then... Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and, I, and there's lots of those films from around that time. That I, it's just when what I would have seen first and things like... Well, they, what would have been the first? Like, certainly when uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula came oh, yes. out, I knew who Francis Ford Coppola was, and I knew he was a big deal. And I, I think maybe people that grew up in that era. How old are you? I'm 29, so I'm yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm, I'm, a, I'm I'm a bit younger than yourself, but okay, I okay. remember I remember kind of I remember quite early. Like, I think I can't remember a time when like I didn't know about especially like the godfather do you yeah, know what I mean? even, even even as like a because obviously when it came out the godfather was like the biggest film mm. of all time and it's like such a 
such an oddity to to, to look at because when you look at it now, it's like imagine like a an eighteen being like the the biggest film of all time, and it's like <laughs> back back in the days where they didn't really care about kids in the cinema. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of that happened in what like nineteen seventy seven with Star Wars. Like yeah. before then, it was just like men. Like you can imagine a lot of smoky rooms going like, what 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 do we want to make? Do you know what I mean? When you look at that kind of uh. 70s new hollywood generation of uh directors they're all like you know, your robert altman's and that and stuff they're all, you can just imagine like a lot of, lot of smoking a lot of cocaine just going like we're gonna make film for men we like this adult stuff and then it's yeah george lucas came along and went well guys actually i'm gonna make a gonna make a space opera i think that's it i think but i think in that era which i guess is probably growing up at a time when all that had just sort of finished mm-hmm. and yet like the the uh, the kind of chemtrail of what they produced yeah. was massive. So like every every kid, even kids who weren't as into films as I was, I reckon would know the name Francis Ford Coppola, and they would know Martin Scorsese. I knew who they were before I saw any of their films. Yes. Yeah. So and, and probably like you would know them in the same way that you would know George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. And you knew them when you, I probably knew who they were when I was three or four. You know, like you kind of think like you, 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 they were so, and you kind of think of that now. Like I've got my friends' kids who are about that age. You think they won't know who are who any film directors are. Yeah. But I would know at that at that age. I mean, I don't know if that's. I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. <laughs> it's, it's almost weirder that I would know, um, like. Um, but I think I think from like very early I know, and it's not just it wasn't just Lucas and Spielberg. You did know all these other people by by the time you were very young. You knew that you knew what The Godfather was. I'd never seen it. I knew what it was. Um, I, you know, I, I I knew and like like I say, I would know who Nicolas Cage was when I was ten or nine or ten or something. I always find it funny. You mentioned earlier about like how he had the cage name and not the popular name. And I think like he, he cites in uh, that great Terry Wogan interview, if you've ever seen it, when he kind mm. of like flips onto the stage, he says like, oh, kids used to pick on me and like would, would quote the Godfather to him and quote Francis Ford Coppola films at him at school. So like, when he kind of wanted to break out, he's like, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm a comic book fan. I like Luke Cage. I'm going to, I'm going to adopt that name. But then, like many of the Coppola family films, he did also want to suck at the teat of the the family, like at any given opportunity. Because if you look at, especially that early '80s run, it's like Rumblefish, as you mentioned. Peggy Sue got married, and that there's yeah, uh, the Cotton Club are all directed by Francis Ford Coppola. So this weird, like I don't know, almost crime family esque thing about. But it's- I always think it's funny. I think it's probably something I picked up from the Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, but that's just stuck with me. Mm. At the time, he wanted to break in, and he felt that Hollywood was so kind of you were sort of beset by all these kind of dynasties there, and it was impossible to break in because Hollywood was run by these dynasties. Then he gets in and does exactly the same thing. Yeah, that it's 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 entirely like he just does the same thing. He doesn't, and I think like. Certainly at the start, you can see that when he was doing all those American zoetrope things, there was an idea that he was trying to hold the door open. And within a year or so, 
finding out, oh, I can't do that because that affects what I'm allowed to do now. Yeah, there's a fantastic I... documentary on YouTube you can watch for free, which is all about like the kind of birth and somewhat demise of American Zoetrope and obviously his grand plans of like being out of the Hollywood system and kind of setting up in San Francisco and having studios. But it just sounded like a mess. Like they used to mm. have like parties and I think they were like the first offices ever to have like a coffee machine. That's like a big part of the documentary. They talk about you would go there and get a cappuccino. Like everyone's going nuts for it. He had like this kind of looks like something out of like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Well, it's exactly the same principle, which again didn't work as as the Beatles did with Apple. We're yeah. exactly the same thing. And then when they try and do it, you just can't do it because it's and it's such a nice idea. It's such a lovely idea. And it's what probably most people think of if they go, I'll tell you what I'd do if I had billions of dollars and weirdly i guess the first person through the door at american zoetrope was lucas who then sort of did do that yeah. he immediately once he had star wars basically went right well, i'm making all this stuff myself then and i'll sell it back to you if you want it which is what essentially what he was francois Coppola was trying to do and didn't really manage yeah i, I think it's mentioned in easy riders raging bulls so like kind of uh, Francis Ford Coppola's like biggest downfall is, is he's kind of like fly on the seat of his pants kind of guy of like I will put all my chips on the table in whatever I'm doing and like I think he was just on the verge of bankruptcy at all times especially that 70s run like you look at um, Apocalypse Now a film we were talking about like off air and he's like kind of just like right it's just supposed to be X amount of days shooting I've, I've been here for a better part of a year and it's like like I don't know if it's going to work. Like he put up the money to fund it and stuff like that, and it's and that yeah, there's really interesting things like the director's company as well. When they tried to make, I think they made they made two films. They were supposed to have uh, William Friedkin make a film as well, but it was THX one three three eight and the conversation. And then like William Friedkin went, nah, don't think so. I don't. I, I, like, something else did me or something. Did he? Was that was that the exit? Maybe that was the Exorcist. I, I, yeah. I, I, I think he'd got the like Exorcist paycheck and went. I've made one of the biggest. Yeah, I've made one of the biggest films of all time right now. So, I, I, I don't need your little little company, Francis. Like, <laughs> you're you're all right. Obviously, we've established how you became aware of the family. What about Christopher Coppola? Do you know much about Christopher Coppola as a director? Still don't. Like I still don't. Um, and even when I sort of looking up at his IMDb, you go. This is the only, the G-Men from Hill is, is the only film of his I've seen. Um, I know he's Katie's brother. So he, I guess, is another nephew of Francis. Yeah. Um, and you, you kind of, again, I feel like there was lots of, I feel like he was mentioned when people would do a list of all the people who were related to Francis Ford Coppola. But apart from the, you know, the usual suspects, there seems to be a bunch of them who you go, I don't know who that is. So, <laughs> There's um, there's also the guy, um, Sophia Coppola's brother, who is you will know Roman Coppola. Who, Roman Coppola. Yeah, who writes CQ that I like a lot. Yeah, so he, he no, that it's obviously gonna be covered at some point on this podcast, but and obviously he's got like his fingers in a lot of pies with. You look at like the Wes Anderson films, mm-hmm. and then you start looking at the technicals, and it's like. Oh, second unit director on Life Aquatic with Steve Suzu, or 
he's written a load he's written moonrise kingdom and then and then you look at the the schwartzman side of the family through talia shire and then it's like fucking hell you've got like you've like jason schwartzman's probably got more screen time than nicholas cage a, a prolific actor you start factoring yeah. in like tv shows he's done like multiple seasons of like hbo shows where it's bored to death and it's like I'm like on a personal note, I'm going to be doing this forever, but it's like, what a family. And like, Mm. back to that kind of mafioso like way that they are, is there's like uh, John's, uh, I need to get this right. Um, So Jason Schwartzman's dad used to be uh, an agent before he married Talia Shire, then became a film producer. So it's like, even when like, when when they like somebody's introduced to the family it's like no you have to actually have a finger in making films now whether it's behind or in front of the camera it's this weird like when that exactly it's that it's that thing of the godfather ends up being and again this sort of film that he wasn't that keen on doing becomes this that they they become this family and this Mm -hmm. dynasty that are always going to be yeah making stuff um there's have you ever seen new york stories no, again, that's one that, uh, yeah, that's the, the the kind of Woody Allen, Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese, right? It's kind of like... Yeah, uh, the Francis Ford Coppola bit of that is another really odd one because it basically is like prototype Wes Anderson. It's like, <laughs> a, it's such it's such that, that it's almost that you go, wow, I mean, it's like he invented Wes Anderson yeah. and then let Wes Anderson carry on making films like that. But I guess it's also similar in tone to something like Sofia Coppola would do. It would be yeah. more like one of her films. It feels such a, it's a, such an odd little throwaway little 25 minute sequence, which is probably then, it is, it just feels like it's so much like what would then be a sort of almost commonplace sort of 90s indie film mm-hmm. aesthetic 10 years later. Well, even when you look at um, being John Malkovich, that, that was offered to Francis Ford Coppola, who at the at the time Spike Jones was married to Sophia Coppola and said, like, no, I know the guy would be perfect to direct this. And it's like they like basically gave him like, I don't know, like that that mafia boss like kiss on the hand or something to be like, it's your turn, Spike. Like, here's a job for you. Go out and direct this one. And then it's like his career kind of blossomed after that. It's a it's a very like I don't know. It's it's great, but at the same time, it's this weird, like nepotistic, uh, odd. The great spider's web of kind yeah. of. <laughs> and I mean, but I mean, someone like Christopher Coppola, I guess, really. I mean, I see he seems to have made a living in an industry which is difficult, mm-hmm. but he's done it by directing episodes of TV shows and and not necessarily being this sort of certainly never a list, ne- never really close to it, and always kind of on the fringes of. Um, of of the sort of mainstream I know people who have like interviewed Christopher Coppola and there's one film he refuses to talk about which is to a lot of people it's like kind of like a cult classic Deadfall his 1993 film starring uh, Nick Cage and uh, Charlie Sheen's in it Michael Bine is like the actual star of it but it's this kind of madcap Nicolas Cage performance where you might you might have seen like stills of it he's got this mustache 
and like a, a, a really bad hairdo and he's just kind of like screaming and shouting and it was kind of one of those like you know when you see those clip reels of Nicolas Cage going wild yeah that's the one film like Christopher Coppola never talks about and it's this uh and, and that that again is littered with like I think it's Nick Cage is in it uh Talia Shire's in it their other brother Mark Coppola's in that film and it's like a very bizarre one but um he's and he's a fascinating looking guy right have you ever seen a photo it's, of yeah Christopher? i've seen photos of him yeah <laughs> he, he almost looks like he looks like this kind of like pirate like uh biker almost and it's i don't know um yeah it's uh it's, it's he's a fascinating guy from everything i've kind of like I've, I've obviously in preparation i've listened to like podcasts he's been on and stuff like that and they're like he's just He's he's talking about like he talks about that's the thing he talks about cinema in a very like oh yeah it's like being experimental and he teaches film as well I'm not like <laughs> uh, we'll get into like why I think maybe that's not the best idea because this film like on on a technical level has got some ropey things going on uh, in it. Two hardened government agents wrongly set up are murdered and sent to hell. This is the place the names we're talking about. Tate Donovan, Bobcat Goldthwait, Paul Rodriguez, Gary Busey, and Robert Goulet as the devil. Look out, it's not like you think. Okay. G-Men from hell. What the hell are you doing in my tub? First thing we do, set up a PI business. I'd like to hire you. Have you seen these two men? We ain't going back. You're still alive. Who is? Our G-Man. I will personally drag your bones back to hell. Starting to like this good deed business. <laughs> you were both puppets for the Bard, weren't you? Who are you calling a puppet? Back off, Pinocchio. Starring William Forsythe, Tate Donovan, Bobcat Goldthwaite, Paul Rodriguez, Gary Busey, and Robert Goulet as the devil. Look, that was not like you think. Okay. G-Men from hell. Bodies falling from heaven. Actually, we're from hell. What is your relationship with this film, Nathaniel? Well, I probably followed the production of this film very closely. And I wanted to do this one when you asked me to be on the podcast because I thought either no one else would do it <laughs> or, or you'd eventually get to it and it would be people going... I don't know what this is. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I'll do this because it feels like I'm, I kind of know exactly what it is. It's, uh, I'm a big, massive fan of a cartoonist called Mike Allward, who is the person who created the G-Men from Hell in comics. And I'm a huge fan of his. And I've got like, I've got multiple different versions of comics he's done. I've got, I think I've got, at one point, I think I had everything he did, but now sort of, good good and bad thing he became much more prolific and started doing lots of covers for things and it was almost impossible mm -hmm. to kind of keep up with how much he was actually doing and at which point i don't think i do but i still got i think i still got most of it and i certainly get anything new that he's contrib contributed more than just a cover to him or whatever. and uh the g-men from hell is from a series he did called graphic music as you say but that was the G-Men from Hell section was half of it. Okay. And it was um, and it was in a story that was called Goulash. It wasn't named G-Men from Hell. And G-Men from Hell 
is basically this thing that was in this thing called goulash. And the idea it's called goulash, which is a better title for it because it was this idea that he was just starting out in comics and he had so many ideas. And he said, why are things, why are like genre so stiff? So he tries to create something which is like, he basically goes through essentially cinematic and comic book genres and very kind of wild ones and go, what if they all exist in exactly the same story? Mm-hmm. So it basically creates a murder mystery story which features 1940s FBI agents, um, the devil, horror elements, um, superheroes, um, robots, mad scientists, and basically goes, right, so we're going to have 40s kind of G-Men movies, 50s sci-fi um 1960s almost adam west batman (laughs) superheroes and what if they're all in the same comic and this idea is kind of what he's done throughout his career in comics and they're brilliant and they kind of work so well on the page for me and i'm a real sucker for all this stuff and he kind of this was his sort of first go at it and he sort of refined it as he went on but they're always this sort of weird mix of genre and they kind of become, as they go on, they become even more kind of existential and they're sort of, but they're all sort of filtered through this huge kind of pop culture kind of funnel. And what comes out is often this kind of mad, often quite, they look quite, often quite childlike ideas, but are actually very dark mm-hmm. as well. And they've got this, and I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of them. And, and, my thing with G-Men from Hell is that it never finished as well. So you only got about three parts of Goulash. It never ended. <laughs> and, and then later on, he he started writing. His next thing was, was a character called Madman, who was a sort of superhero archetype that he realized, oh, well, these this is what sells in comics. So I'll take a character who is in Goulash, put a costume on him, and this will be my character, Frank Einstein. And then... Frank Einstein became this big, big sort of breakout hit in the early 90s. And that has been in sort of development hell with Robert Rodriguez for about 20 years. And it's never been made into a movie. This was like this big sort of hit character. And then I think later on, I think Christopher Coppola was one of the people who tried to initially uh, get the license to do a Madman film but couldn't because it was already bought up. It was either, I think Universal had it for a while and then I think Robert Rodriguez took it over. So I think around that time, around the sort of late 90s, Christopher Coppola was trying to make a Madman film, I believe, couldn't get the rights, but then he realised that if the the Frank Einstein character, who's the main character in Madman, he also featured before he had a costume in his series Goulash. And so what they do is they basically extricate the Frank Einstein character and what <laughs> they're left with is these kind of G-Men character and that's basically the basis for the G-Men from Hell movie. So it takes all these sort of supporting characters who a lot of them end up in the Madman series and have them instead. So it's a bit like, I guess, what, you know, like the with X-Men and what exactly who they have rights to and who they don't. Yes. How they kind of cross over with the ones that Marvel had the rights to and how they didn't. 
So you've got lots of characters. Like it's Dr. Boffard is, is a big <laughs> character in Mad Men. Um, the G-Men show up later in Mad Men. And later on, essentially, because when the film came out, I think he probably saw it as a ta- at the time that this might be a big movie. It wasn't. But like, <laughs> I think he thought there was a possibility that, oh, what I should do then? So to, at, the idea was that in the year 2000, he was currently working on this huge series that was called The Atomics. But he was also aware that, oh, there's a countdown to when this movie's going to come out. So this is almost the time he became super prolific and basically changed the way he drew so he was able to draw a lot faster. <laughs> it's still very, like, he sort of changed his style, but it sort of became like there was a lot of uh, energy to what he was doing and it was still really good. So he sort of became super prolific, changed the way he was drawing so he could draw a lot faster and also hated, never reprinted any of that graphic music stuff. I do have it somewhere. I'll find <laughs> it. I've got that too, I want to show you. And he basically redrew all the goulash stuff and made it into a flashback in the Madman series and then was able to finish the goulash series uh, like a decade after it started. So all the stuff that's in the, at the beginning, the opening credits of the movie, which are great. The opening credits start off as you just get pages of this comic, yeah. which is essentially what was from the later Madman series, just completely taken out. <laughs> But it's, what ruins it is it's also um, it's intercut with this terrible um, sort of speech bubbles mm-hmm. of of the the cast and the name of the film and a thing that really feels like I mean you could have done better in 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 two thousand and one two thousand you could have done better than that and just to say yeah it's like comic books you well, know like comic books if we look at like comic book films that came out in the year two thousand. This is the same year as X-Men, like Brian Singer's first X-Men. And it's like, if you hold these two films up to each other, it's like, wow. Like, this this is very, like... And it again, it, it kind of, you said, it, play, it plays with, like, noir tropes and stuff like that. And, like, the, the, the score is very much, like, screaming, like, noir, noir. But it's, it's, more, it's more soapy than it is pulpy. And it's... Like your your kind of um, description of the backstory of the comic and stuff like that feels like you need to know all of that before watching this film because you I kind think of you do. I think that's it. I think it's and actually, I my issue with it is I'm watching it going, how would you even relate to this if you don't know its origin? Except I kind of think. I think it's a far from perfect film. Oh. <laughs> There's so much about it. I think is done really well. It's sort of like it's so successful in what in translating this comic, mm-hmm. which is a bit rough around the edges to begin with. But it does such a good job in translating it. But what it does, it brings it out in this. It re- it kind of exists in a vacuum. It doesn't exist without everything around it. It's this. Uh, uh, but in a way, like you say, it's sort of, oh, it came out the same year as X-Men. It's not trying to be X-Men. No. It, and it's got, what I think is good about it is it absolutely knows what it is. I just don't think it lets the audience know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I, I was it, there like going, is it meant to be a period piece? Like obviously like it's very, yeah, it's, it's, it's very like 1940s like noir. But then it's like, there's references to... CDs 
there's like it's kind of like it's a real hodgepodge and it felt like it, a, as a script like lots of different scripts like the pages just got muddled they went here you go like uh, not uh, a spoof it's pastiche <laughs> but it's not pastiching one thing yeah it's pastiching <laughs> eight different things at once <laughs> which is exactly what the comic is and i think it's a really good example of something that works incredibly well on the page but it in that same way that often when comic book movies were coming out from from superman on superman does such a good job of creating this mythology because it wasn't didn't really exist before that so much of what they sort of put onto that superman mythology with the christopher reeve movies were things that are only vaguely in the comics anyway and kind of didn't really make sense and they kind of create this sort of definitive origin story that then the comics go, oh yeah, that's much better. <laughs> you know, that's like so we'll just we'll kind of hold on to that. Whereas in the the sort of it took another twenty years for them to kind of start getting things right to the point where you know the Marvel movies now are sort of made by Marvel. Yeah. So they go, well, why don't we just do them exactly like they are in the comics rather than trying to adapt them into a way that people go, well, that won't work on film. And they, what Marvel do, I think very well is that they. They take, they're kind of very well adapted from their source material. They're not really trying to change anything. Yeah. They're just trying to, if something feels like it might not work on screen, they try and explain <laughs> why it's going to work on screen or, or they don't, it's not so much changing anything. They just kind of um, change something about it. Like, um, like the problem I remember when they were making a Black Panther film, and Black Panther was one of those characters I really liked as a comic. But at the same time, I was going, but it's a very um, white version of what Africa's like. It's a very dated... I don't think you can do a film of this, because I think, I think if you make a Black Panther film, it's almost inherently racist now. <laughs> not because it, not because it, it was ever trying, not trying to be or anything. It's just by its nature, it's almost impossible. It's this sort of math, uh, magical African. Yeah. Um, it sort of becomes this sort of a bit kind of dodgy and a bit kind of, oh, that's tricky. Even though the intentions of making it at the time were in the 60s and 70s, it was to be very like right on. Yeah. yeah. Except for 30 years later, what, what was seen as very right on and progressive now feels like absolutely not. <laughs> and yet what they do is they don't really change anything about it, but they um, they they just do it. But they do it with, from like a black perspective. Yeah. And you go, that's how you do it. And you go, and you watch it and you go, that's exactly how you do it. And you haven't even changed it. <laughs> and yet like on paper, like I, I, <laughs> I was thinking, um, I think me now as someone who's never made a film would love to make a film. I think if in whatever year it was, 2015, 2016, if Marvel Studios came to me, who'd never made a film and said, listen, we want you to make a new Marvel movie. And you go, that's amazing. Which one? And they said to me, Black Panther. I'd say, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm going absolutely nowhere near that. Because um, <laughs> I wouldn't know how to do it. In, in a way you go, well, I'd love to do it, but I can't, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> And what, what they actually did, I think that in some ways, for me, I think that is one of the best Marvel movies, simply because it's like, a, when I watched it, I went, wow, yeah, that's how you do it. 
<laughs> that's exactly how you do it now. But it was sort of, it comes from such a, I mean, it's not dodgy source material because it is definitely yeah. trying. It's really progressive in its era, but it just isn't. It's yeah, not yeah. 21st century at all. And to so, do it, to put it on screen, it was really impressive. So when would have uh, G-Men from Hell come out in relation to graphic music? Would it have been like... The movie? Yeah. Graphic music came out, I think, in 91. Okay, think. so... 1990, so, something like that. So we've got nine years. So let's talk about the film. So the cast list, like, it's a pretty decent cast, right? It's like, oh, it's a brilliant cast. It's so, always what I think you should do in those kind of indie movies. Yeah, is so, that instead of getting, like, you get a bunch of people who are kind of character actors and you make all of the character actors the stars. Mm-hmm. It's so, great. So let's look at who we've got. We've got William Forsyth as Dean Crept. We've got Tate Donovan as Mike Mattress. Mm-hmm. Bobcat Goldthwait as Buster Lloyd. Barry Newman as Grayland Lake. Zach Galligan as Dalton. Gary Boosie as uh, Lieutenant Langdon, who possibly has, like, one of the best introductions into a <laughs> film. Does. Like, he's kind of, like, open, like, turns up on the scene and um, says to, like, Zach Galligan's character, who's, who's his new partner, and uh, Zach Galligan's, like, it's kind of, like... He's the commissioner's son as well, isn't he? Yeah. Zach he's Galligan's like... the commissioner's son, and he's kind of, you feel like he's been promoted above mm-hmm. above other people in the force. And this is kind of like, I, I, again, like, does it go into the that character of Lieutenant Langdon more in the comic book from what you remember? Because we kind of like, we get this weird introduction with like an apology or almost like an acceptance from Zach Galligan's character going like, I know you're gay. Like, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Gary Boosie's opening line is, <laughs> I'm a sadistic leather master homosexual and I will tease your sensibilities, which almost sounds like something that would have been like uh, very easily put into the scripts of like a Clive Barker novel or like, do you know what I mean? It could have, could yeah. have easily been torn out of the pages of Hellraiser or something. And it's, Those characters don't appear in the comics. They're ones that are almost exclusively in the film. <laughs> um, most aren't. Most are from the comics. Those, those characters... And weirdly, actually, now I think about it, the reason they don't appear in the comics, the, the, the film, I should say, is a really good adaptation. And it's slightly, I'm sure there must be some sort of um, sag rules that mean that Michael Rudd can't be listed as screenwriter. Mm-hmm. But the dialogue is pretty much from the comics as well. There's, no, there's nothing in it. That, but there are scenes like that, that those characters are introduced in it and aren't in the comics. But they're um, that they're not. That there's no need for them really to be in the film. No, <laughs> if you cut them out, they, I think for running time they kind of introduce these sort of subplots with like those two characters that kind of show up at intervals. But they're not really, you know, they're basically investigating the G-men who are themselves investigating a murder mystery. Yeah. So they're they're almost like following them around. But there's no real need for them to be in it. <laughs> Before we get too deep into talking about it, could you give us a setup of this film? What is the kind of like the basic plot? The basic plot is that Dean Crept and Mike Mattress are two kind of, I mean, they're they're forties era uh, FBI agents mm-hmm. in look and in 
uh, in presentation and attitude in, in, in a film way. Yeah. Sort of in, in the in the movie world, they're movie FBI agents from the forties, except they basically exist in the present day. <laughs> and they um, and Dean Kretz, uh, uh wife and daughter have been murdered in their cars, essentially exploded by something mysterious, and you never really find out who's behind it for sure, which I guess was going to be the the ongoing storyline about it. Um, And then they themselves are killed. Um, uh, It's assumed that uh, Dean Kretz's wife and daughter are good people and (laughs) went straight to heaven, whereas Tate Donovan's character, Mike Mattress and William Forsyth, Dean Kretz, they get sent to hell because they've been doing bad things. And actually, in the comics, they're probably a bit worse. They're not <laughs> as likable. And, and it's probably quite clear that, yeah, you've gone to hell because you're kind of corrupt FBI yeah. agents. But still, because they're essentially FBI agents, they see themselves very much as being good guys, <laughs> even though they might have done terrible things to criminals and are completely, completely bent. Um, because they're on the side of good. Yeah. They see themselves as good guys, which I guess in the comics, I guess that's clearer in the idea that is that, you know, these people are kind of corrupt, but they're, they they themselves wouldn't even think of themselves as corrupt. Mm-hmm. They get sent to hell at the beginning of the film. In fact, not even at the beginning of the film. That's done in um, in comic book. Yeah. Um, you don't <laughs> actually see any of that. And then the film begins with them in hell and the devil, played by uh, Robert Goulet, is um uh who's you know lounge singer and he's playing Robert Goulet playing <laughs> the devil um uh, is a sort of lounge singer who I think at the start is getting is getting kind of uh, psychoanalyzed by uh, Sigmund Freud yeah also in hell <laughs> um, <laughs> um and meanwhile Kreps and Mattress are trying to figure a way and they find that there's a crystal that will basically take them back to earth um so they send themselves back to earth and decide that once they're there if they commit enough good deeds they will eventually be allowed into heaven so they basically set up a uh a, a, a private investigations they become pis <laughs> and the idea is they're going to help people rather than do bad things even though probably less so in the comics both of them are kind of bad people in the film Kate Donovan's much more willing to still do bad things and Dean Krept is sort of trying to make him go, is sort of the more moral yeah. one of the two and he's trying to get them back on back on track. So if they do good deeds, they essentially earn their way into heaven. Which is a weird like thing in casting because like, Tate Donovan has got like a very like could-do-no-wrong face. Do you know what I mean? He looks like... like such like a, a nice guy and like he's like i think only like a few years earlier he had voiced uh hercules in the disney uh, animation which uh links this film to that in that bobcat Goldthwaite is also uh, a voice in that film oh, is he? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah i think he plays like pain or suffering like the kind of hate <laughs> like minions and obviously if you hear bobcat Goldthwaite's voice you know it's bobcat Goldthwaite. like he's like that even if he's trying to play like a a mobster in this, he's still got the like going on. It's uh, breaking all over the place. But then 
in the film is when we get all of these subplots kind of thrown in and it's yeah. like it gets crazy right because i, I oh, my, my notes here i just kept putting down who's this like who, <laughs> who, who who's this bloke in a cheetah onesie then all of a sudden like who's this bloke with a puppet like what well, and it's it does it it does nothing to introduce these characters to you it's just all of a sudden like the cam- like the camera cuts from a Dutch angle to some d- yeah. very dark room. I'm not sure if that is because I watched this film on YouTube. And I've got to admit, I'm very wary if a film is is on YouTube and is not taken down very quickly. I'm like, <laughs> what is the quality of that film? Well, the movie <laughs> was made in 99 and didn't get a DVD release until 2002. Mm-hmm. That was kind of in limbo, <laughs> so I was waiting for it. Like, that's it. It feels like I was probably one of the few people in the world who was anxiously <laughs> waiting for this film to drop, as you'd say now. And yet it came out 2002 on DVD. But I think the DVD was largely sold to fans of Mike Allred. Yes. And it feels like the commentary is by him. There's no Christopher Coppola or anything on the commentary on the DVD. And it's and I think it's sold more as a curiosity. Like mm-hmm. we, we're basically going to release the we, we can sell it to however many thousand people are fans of Michael Oren comics. I think. Well, the film's like rebranded once it gets like a, a home release. In that it's it's retitled uh, Michael Oren's G Men from Hell, as opposed to like I think the original it's just G Men from Hell, like. A, a film by Christopher Coppola's. Like it's as you say, it's the, and like you you showed me the DVD. It's like it hasn't got the god awful poster like artwork that kind which, of like, which with with someone on it who I suspect isn't William Forsyth is a G man <laughs> who's pulled his hat down just enough that he's completely anonymous. Yeah, and, it look it looks more like um I don't know. It looks more like Nick Nolte. Or something yeah, like, it, 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 yeah, it's very it's weird. It's not going to be any of the people in it. They've just hired someone to put a hat on and pull it down over their face and put flames behind it that signify hell. And again, it doesn't. That doesn't look like what the film looks like. No. I mean, in a way, the the cover to the DVD that I've got, which is just a Mike Allred illustration, is kind of how they should have done all of the publicity. Mm-hmm. Because I think if you'd seen that, you'd go. Oh, it's gonna be comic booky. It's going to be um, Adam West Batman. It's it kind of that's just a much better, and that's what they're trying to do as well. It's not that they're well, the, going uh, away from it. The artwork it's got gives it more of that like look that you're gonna see it in the like. It looks like it came out very early nineties at least, and it would be a video that like is collecting a lot of dust in the video shop because yes, like. Yeah. It makes it look terrible. Like, not that you should judge a book or a film by its cover, but it's like if I'm going off of like the poster art for G Men from Hell, it's like, nah, I think I'll get, I'll give it, a, I'll give it a steer. If I like, as I, well, I would have been 11 years old when this film kind of came out. If I was like in the, yeah, if I was in Blockbuster and I was like, you got X Men there or you got G Men from Hell, I'd go, ah, I think we're going. X-Men. Yeah. Like <laughs> in a way, again, Goulash is a much better title. Yeah. Because it's basically saying it's got everything in it. Yeah, it's a hodgepodge of like and that's the thing. Like, I, Anything I, goes. 
just having this conversation, I kind of like I'm I'm softening to the film ever so slightly. But that's only because I've got this context now. If mm. like if if you had asked me right at the beginning of this conversation, what do you think of this film? I'd be like, it's crap. Like, do you know what I mean? Now I kind of understand what it's trying to do, and it it doesn't quite execute some things. Like Christopher Copper has got this overuse of Dutch angles in this film, which is just like come on like just just straighten up the camera do you know what i mean like, i know like, again even some of that stuff i'm kind of i forgive because it feels like it's going for something which isn't comic booky sort of like i know like i totally see what it's going or it's what it's trying to do and it's my problem well it's not a problem with it <laughs> i I sort of don't have a problem with it. I, I think it's sort of I think it's incredibly successful in what it's doing. I think I think for comic book movies, it's like it sort of does it right. I think the problem with it, which is the problem films like Watchmen and um and certainly Sin City, is that you can do it and you can go, finally, they've made a film which is entirely authentic to its source materials. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work as a film. Yeah. It's entirely authentic to what it's to its source material, but it doesn't it's not it's not really a great movie mm-hmm. because it's so tied to being so it's it's it, the, the correct way to do it is almost not to try and adapt it completely yeah. accurately. It's probably a bit better to try and do something slightly different or to try and do what is the movie version of that, which is what Marvel do now. They go, yeah. what is the movie version of Thor? Or what is the movie version of Spider-Man? They, and, you know, something like Sin City, which, like this, has the same dialogue. The composition of all the shots are basically taken from panels of comics and reproduced and cgi so they essentially match. Yeah. Uh, the, and, you know, the comics are black, black and white or black, white and red because of printing. But they go, well, let's make it like that because it's we can do that now. Mm-hmm. We can make this black, white, and red film. And and then you get this sort of you watch them and they're fun to watch. But they're not real. And I'd like to see something like Sin City. I'd be interested to watch it again. I haven't seen it for years and years. But afterwards, there's something quite hollow about that as well. It's that kind of it isn't quite what it's what the comic is and it isn't a movie either you, yeah. you kind of get this weird halfway house and yet as someone who is a big fan of the mike Allred comics there's something where you go i mean this is sort of wild <laughs> it's kind of exactly right and yet it's not as well it's also <laughs> not quite it's not quite right but it's almost exactly right but it's it's a the reading experience of reading virtually the same material as you're watching on screen and knowing that that is entirely you know faithful to what you're reading what you're reading is better yeah <laughs> well, it, it's weird as a film as well because it does feel like it is weirdly episodic because you kind of like it feels like you've got this moment and it probably comes like nearly an hour in where you get them uh, visited by the devil who then like and for for it to kind of set up like the the machinations of the plot basically to be like you've got what is it forty six hours to solve yeah. this crime it's like 
it's an hour and 38 minute long film. It's like, <laughs> it's pretty long to be, to be setting that in motion. It's kind of, <laughs> it's the, the first, the first close to an hour, it's kind of just been a bit meandering about. It's kind of got this weird CGI traveling from hell and down a plot, like down a, uh, down a sink and stuff like that. And then, yeah, we just kind of get them wandering about and we, we, we get Cheetah Man out. No, we get introduced to all these subplots that we don't like. Yeah, so and they're also not resolved because they yeah. <laughs> it, because they never got resolved in the comics either. <laughs> because it stopped. The comics stopped because not enough people bought it. And he sort of then has another go and going. Well, what if I have these characters in a slightly different context, and that becomes a hit? But so many of like, there's so many of these plot threads that were never resolved in the comics, and in a movie especially one which is introducing new characters to cover running time, the the writers don't really feel they've got the artistic license to try and finish off their stories. Mm-hmm. Like you get introduced to things like Cheetah Man's girlfriend. But why? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's like, why? These, yeah. You know, he doesn't really get a resolution. None of these characters get a resolution, but they don't in the comics either because it's a comic that ran for three issues and then stopped. <laughs> It's got that the thing with like Cheetah Man as well. You get this like glimpse at like at something bigger, and like, oh, is this film trying to tell us something about like the the like trying to be a hero? Is it worth it? Where she's like, oh, you need to go see your psychiatrist or like see a therapist, and it's like, oh, that's a really interesting thread. And it's like, oh, let's drop that. And it then also, like, <laughs> it's something which is it's playing with comic book tropes that haven't yet been seen as films mm-hmm. so it's like in that you've got he's this sort of angst-ridden 90s era era superhero but the joke is kind of but he's a guy who dresses as a cheater yeah and so it's sort of it's sort of a joke on sort of superhero tropes and so you've got almost like this angsty 80s 90s era comic book where everything is kind of angsty but drawn in a way that is like but what if what if Adam West was like that? Yeah. It, and it's sort of a comic booky trope, which is in the comic is sort of being playful and is really like, um, it's sort of funny and it's something you sort of haven't seen and it's a bit of a joke on comics itself and the nature of these characters. What would they really be like? What would they really be like? And they still look like Adam West. What would that, what if they were really these, what if the comics today, which are very angsty, but what if they, instead of looked like they were drawn in these 90s, kind of very dark yeah. superhero characters, what if they still look like they did in the 60s? <laughs> and you've got that, and that's, and it is often that thing where it's just translating these ideas that don't necessarily work on film. They work as, there was a really, um, what, what film was it for? I think it was when Mystery Men came out, which I guess this is a problem, that's probably a similar comparison to what they're trying to do in something yeah. like this that there was a really great review I remember in Sight and Sound that Kim Newman wrote about it. And he said, the reason this film, he said, the film is really successful. He said, the film's really good, but it's not going to land with audiences because movie audiences don't have a context for what it's spoofing. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, and at that time, he's saying, there's never been a Justice League movie. Yeah, There's never been a... So it's like, and now you would understand that Oh, they're like the Avengers or something. But all you'd had at that time was this, you'd have, there weren't that many superhero movies when Mystery Mm -hmm. Men came out. 
Yeah. So he was saying it's not going to work for modern audiences and didn't because they didn't know what it was spoofing. You didn't have a context for it. And the comics have their own context and they're read by people that read comics. And when you adapt that stuff, it doesn't necessarily work as a film because there's no context to what you're looking at. Yeah, definitely. And like, well, one of the questions I had for you was uh, in the comic book, does does Gary Boosie's character just disappear? But we've established it. He's, he's not, not in the comic book, which <laughs> makes me think with this film, like I tried to dig for it. I was like, did he quit? Because like it, all of a sudden, like it's probably like in the last quarter of the film, like when they get to like the, what can only be like, it's like the kind of Agatha Christie or like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, mis- murder mystery ending where they've, yeah. they've, throughout the film, they've said to everyone like, tomorrow night, at midnight, meet us at the church on L Street, and like they've said it to everyone. It's like, all right, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna assemble all the all the potential perps and pick out who it's gonna be, and then we kind of just get that throwaway line from Zach Galligan, who's like, uh, he did a deal with you guys. He's been suspended. Now it's like, oh, I think there's I think there's more to that. I think yeah, like, there could be more to that, especially because they do bring them back for no reason. I think it might be running time. But they finished the script, looked at it, and it's 60 pages. And they add on these. Because essentially their job is to investigate the G-men who are themselves investigating yeah. the murder. And it's not like, it's not a very neat Elmore Lenardy thing where you end up with Mexican standoff of various different people wanting various different things of all the main characters. They basically turn up and kind of go, all right, have you done it? Cool. <laughs> it's that kind of um it's not like it's uh but i think the addition of gary boosie fits into it. It, it it fits into the world of it they do a good job of introducing those characters as like i can see these guys being yeah. in this film and it's, uh, yeah it's just the fact that gary boosie is all of a sudden gone like just stood out to me it's like I, there must be something that he like because uh, He's quite a fiery guy from everything. Like sure. I kind of imagine that maybe, like maybe he went fuck this shit. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not just sitting in a church and being lectured to by, by William Forsyth and uh, Tate Donovan whilst they kind of like go through. And it's like similar to like the end of Clue where they kind of like go through all the potential motives of who it could be. And then when, <laughs> when we find out who it is. Who committed the murder of um is it Grey Lake, the, yes. the old gentleman? So yeah, the kind of the the people we have who are the, the potential suspects. We have his wife Gloria, who had hired the G Men. Vanessa have, Angel. Yes. We so have, again, a very sort of very nineties era. Mm-hmm. But but it is, it's this cast of people who are kind of they're almost cast for being sort of uber versions, turned up versions of who they are in other films, I guess. It's that well, kind of... Well, yeah, you look at the casting of uh, Frank McRae, who, like, kind of, like, shows up in, uh, like, spoof films, in, like, Loaded Weapon 1, yes. and he's also in Last Action Hero, and always, normally plays that, like, uh, like angry chief inspector of the police. But in this, he's this kind of, like, uh, overzealous landlord who's, like, being, like... He has a great introduction. He's just, well, throughout the film, he's getting his shoes shined. And he kind of says, like, you pay me on the first. And he's like, if you don't, like, uh, 
I'll, I'll be I'll be there to see you. And he's like, and if I have to come again, I'm gonna I'm gonna grind you into I'm gonna grind you into itty itty bitty mincemeat. And like fucking like. So you got these wacky performances all over the place. As we've established, like you have got Bobcat Golfway, who's kind of quite subdued for Bobcat Golfweight, right? Yeah. Who starts off as this low-rent-like kind of mobster and then becomes this, as, as yeah, as you alluded well, to. Well, I think the, 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 <laughs> he seems to have been, he, he did the, he was the one who blew up his wife and daughter's car in the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the pre-credit sequence. We don't know who's made him do it or who's put him onto it, but he's, you know, he's essentially the guy who executed it, whether he was behind it or not. Um, David Huddleston, who is Santa Claus mm-hmm. um, from Santa Claus the movie, and is in various Coen Brothers movies as this sort of, you know, is um, and it's, it's just sort of full of character actors who you all know from other things, and you go, even if you don't know them by name, it's like, oh, it's that guy, it's yeah, that yeah, yeah. guy. Everyone, everyone is played by that guy or her. Carrie Wurr at the time who's their secretary. I can't remember her name. I've probably got it up. Have I got it up here? It she's is called Marette Marette. Morris. Yeah. Um, she was at the time kind of kind of on the way up, but never really got there. She's in things like eight-legged freaks around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul, we, we, we should talk about Paul Rodriguez, who plays uh, Winifred, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, the weenie man, who... <laughs> Has got a very like a, a very bizarre career. Just uh, I, I remember looking like he's got like a a two punch like credits on his IMDb, uh, which goes in 2009 he did a film called Porn Dogs: The Adventures of Sadie, and then a year later he did Cats and Dogs: The Revenge of Kitty Galore, and it's like he's really spreading out for all the kind of the the whole dog market. It's like We'll play one for the adults and I'll do one for the kids. But yeah, he's he, he seems to be a voice actor through and through. But in this, he looks like some kind of I don't know, demented like children's TV presenter or like character. And he's this big bouffant hair and he's well, he's sent by the devil to get them back, right? Yeah, and he is he looks like he's from uh Again, at the time, their comics are different now. But like, at the time, I think Michael Ward was a big. Obviously, the the whole graphic music thing is very influenced by Eight Ball, mm-hmm. which was Dan Klaus's comic, which Ghost World comes out of, and Art School Confidential comes out of. Um, and a lot of the stuff that weren't were less kind of narrative things in Eight Ball were things that that feature characters a lot more like Winifred and. Mm-hmm. And it's very, that kind of eight-ball Dan Clow's world fits in a lot with the G-Men from Hell stuff as well. And I think Mike Horan at the time, I think, would have been really influenced by his comics. Um, so there's a lot of that in it. Um, Charles Fleischer is Martin and Pete, who is the man who has the uh, his little hand-glove puppet. Um, and Charles Fleischer is the voice of Roger Rabbit. And mainly he is like a voice actor. But at the time of Roger Rabbit, Charles Fleischer, certainly over here, and I suspect was true in America, was the guy who was brought on to promote Roger Rabbit when it came out. So Charles Fleischer was brought out. He would have been on things like Blue Peter. Mm 
and Saturday Superstore. And so like he kind of became like for me, I knew who Charles Fleischer was because he was the Roger Rabbit guy. Mm-hmm. Because he would go on Blue Peter, do Roger Rabbit's voice. And so he's sort of perfect as this guy who has, you know, this hand puppet who acts like, you know, a sort of um and it's the trope of having the sort of haunted ventriloquist dummy. Yeah. But it's with a hand puppet <laughs> and gets to do two voices. So that is a really fun character in the movie. And to get Charles Fleischer to do it, who's a voice actor who gets to play essentially two characters in one, is a really kind of neat bit of casting. And all the casting in it is sort of perfect. Yeah. I go, they're really well cast. And they're such a, and they always can never work out why lower budget movies don't try and populate your film with other character actors. So if you can't have big stars, why not have a whole cast full of, oh, it's that guy. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. M. It's her off of that. It's it's <laughs> this. It's, and then the whole cast, virtually to go, go pretty much to the last, the lowest rung member of the cast. In fact, one of the pe- people who comes out at the end of the movie is um, you get a drunk who is uh, handed the, the keys to uh, the Rolls Royce at the end. Mm. And the drunk, that is Mike Allred. Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure early on in the film, it's probably uncredited cameo, like you see in the background on the street, you see Christopher Coppola as well. It's got ah, a, he's, got a very, he's got a very striking, like, silhouette. Um, so, yeah, that, that ending, it gets revealed that it was it was Pete. The So Dr. Um, Broyford has, has this plan to... to, to to take people's essence and put them into inanimate objects. Oh, like he's inanimate. a mad scientist who's basically, essentially, he's he's like a modern-day B-movie Victor Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So he basically can reanimate corpses, essentially. But he doesn't have to do it in the body of human beings. So he's like, well, how else can we do it? So he reanimates uh, a robot who is... Um, so uh, Bobcat Goldthwait's character... Mm-hmm. It is, isn't it? Or is it? Yeah, yeah it is, isn't it? He, he, yeah, yeah. He, he's reanimated. He is then put into the body of a robot. And the robot, again, isn't like an android. It's a B-movie, mm, a sci-fi robot. Yeah, it's a man in a suit. And then there's that brilliant moment as well where he's doing repairs and trying to get a new head. And, like, it's just an amazing bit of, like, practical design. of like There's just this microphone with a couple of eyes like when he's kind of yeah, when he's fixing after uh, Cheetah Man throws a TV on his head, and it almost looks some I don't it looks like something out of Beetlejuice or something like the shrunken heads, and you know, like all of a sudden Bobcat Goldthwait's voice is like pitched up and stuff like that, and then like so yeah, so we have we have that, and then we have the puppet, and it's revealed that the puppet used to just be a a homeless kid that he found and was kind of the doctor's first ever reanimation experiment yeah. so he's basically reanimated a homeless <laughs> child into the into a, a, a glove puppet which is a very kind of but again it's like in the context of it's kind of sort of quite bad taste but it's also funny yeah it's funny i don't know but again it's sort of like it's difficult to know how this comes across in the film where you go it is it's all funny it's all done for laughs it's all like fun and yet, it's sort of when you, it's sort of when you're watching it, 
I guess that's it. It feels, I mean, you watch a film, it's like you're watching it totally out of context. I don't, and it's interesting why the context of it changes so much in a film than it would in a comic. Well, I can't help but think that obviously, like, what, we're two step removed talking about it. So obviously Mm. people are going to listen to this conversation and we're just probably going to sound like a couple of madmen, like talking about talking about this film, like that is adapted from that comic, because it's like we genuinely just sound like we're just pulling stuff out, like oh yeah, yeah robot out of here. And it's like if you haven't seen this film or or you know nothing about uh, graphic music or Mike Orrid's work, this this conversation is going to be absolutely baffling to people. I think that's probably it. <laughs> like you say, I think it's better. <laughs> to go in, I think you'd get a lot more out of it if you know mm-hmm. what the context is that it was kind of created. Because yeah, instead, you get a movie that exists in a vacuum, yeah, where it's not really like any other film. No, um, and 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 I guess it's close in comparison. Are things like Mystery Men? Mm-hmm. It's probably as close again, which is in itself based on, I guess, a similar source material that come from. In fact, it's very similar because that's based on Flaming Carrot comics, but they've exercised Flaming Carrot and used the, um, the supporting cast to make a film. So probably that's exactly, if you, if you had a double bill with this film, you'd have it with uh, Mystery Men, I imagine. Amazing. Well, yeah, so on that, in that like, wrap-up, we get the devil shows up. He gives them a second chance to, to live on Earth. They kind of go out and they ask the immortal question, like, how are we going to get to heaven? And we get Cheetah Man just peering off a roof. And, like, it just has this weird, like, I'm not sure if it's, like, all of a sudden, like, this, it feels like a message movie in that moment. Like, when Cheetah Man delivers that line, it's like, you've just got to do good deeds every day to get get to heaven. And it's like, oh, wait a second. Is this like a, is this a, is this like a, is they snuck in a bit of a religious movie in here to kind of be like, and, and ladies and gentlemen, that's the moral. Do a good deed every day. What did you kind of make of that ending? Um, again, I think I didn't. <laughs> in a way, I didn't wince or do anything because it's so much like mm-hmm. it's sort of the thing that it that it is. It's like um, it's silly. Yeah, it knows it is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of corny. It's deliberately so. It's it's you know it's it's all those things. It just doesn't. Yeah, it is. It's such a when when I watched it, I was completely. I remember watching it and being a bit like, "Yeah, it's all right." <laughs> the first time I saw it, which is probably eighteen years ago, <laughs> and yet watching it now, I just watched it thinking, "Oh wow! Imagine if you knew nothing about what this is based on." Yeah, me. Go, that's you. <laughs> and I, I watched it and watched it with that perspective and went. This would be wild if you've got that. And you think, this is the audience, you know. It's invented, you know, it's a movie. It's for a wide audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But none of them, like, well, like, I'd like to think, like, hipper people might get it, perhaps. I don't know, like, if they kind of went in, like, but I guess what that, what it would need as a, as a movie is probably, like, um... If that was a big movie, it would have a marketing team behind it and they would be promoting this movie with all the actors kind of explaining what it was and where it came from. What? When it's a low-budget movie that kind of creeps out, you don't get any context for what, where it's come from or who made it or what it's based on. You just get them finished film in isolation. 
and I guess there's probably lots of there's probably lots of big mainstream, big budget sci-fi movies that don't really work unless they're sold to you by people telling you kind of what the plot is before you go and see it. You know, yeah. go, all right, well, it's that, is it? I'll go and see it. I think if I had watched this under different circumstances, because I had to kind of watch it with like a, an analytical eye to talk about it, kind of like really pay attention. Whereas if this was kind of like a Friday night and the the world was open and we could like have a few beers and a few friends around or whatever, it'd be it's it's a great it's a great like bit of fun. It's, it very much is like you said how it's almost sold now. It's like an oddity that that comic book and, and it has now made me like interested. If anything, yeah, it's made me interested. Be like, oh, well, kind of want to check out like Michael Rudd's work and the comic and stuff like that, and try and see if I can track down a copy of that that DVD just to like I don't see what he thinks about the film because again, like looking up online, I, 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 from what I recall, and certainly my first watching of it, of course you're over the moon because yeah. you basically made yeah, this is it, <laughs> did it. This is the whole. Um, this is the whole thing. This is like this is my Comic Con screen. You've done it, and you've not. It's not a thing where it turns up and you go, "Well, that character doesn't really look like that," and that oh, you've not really. That doesn't look who that's meant to look like. You're you're just watching it, going, "Wow, you've done it really faithfully." You know, it's like kind of that's exactly what what it's supposed to be like. So, in the best way that we we could have talking about this very confusing movie i think i think we've we've given the listeners an, an, enough that if if they are they are going to dip their toe into g-men from hell they're going to or if they want to avoid it they very much will um but one of the features to do on this uh, new journey is looking at any any weird connections we could find between this film whether it's an actor or somebody who worked on the film who turns up in another couple of films did you manage to find any well, I think I've done what I was supposed to. I wasn't sure if I've done it in the right way, but just a very obvious one is that William Forsythe in Raising Arizona with Nick Cage. Mm -hmm. um, is that what you need, or do you want even more kind of no, tenuous no. six degrees ways of... I mean, no. if you go through degrees of degrees, I reckon everyone, I'm sure you could go... Oh, no, no, no. no, no. That, is, that, that, that is perfect. Yeah, if we, if we start going... Six degrees. We're going to be here, going to be here yeah. a week. Um, I reckon I could get the whole cast back to uh, <laughs> in six. Well, I found on like yeah, on the last record, I went through every single like kind of uh, one degree I could find. But I think it's going to be very boring for the listeners. So what I'll do from now on, guys, is we'll do a few back and forth, and then I will put it in the show notes or give you access to, to more connections I could find but some of the more weirder ones and uh, I could find is both Tate Donovan and Barry Newman appear in the OC the TV series which Jason Schwartzman's band Phantom Planet provided the theme song California for so that's the that's a real like tenuous link for this film uh, I don't I, think I should point out that I guess at the time this film came out Tate Donovan was kind of like a nearly man, right? Mm -hmm. He was yeah. always at the cusp of kind of, and he's and he is he's in, like a lot of these guys, nearly people who were nearly somebody. Not that he's not anyone, but you know, like he, he was nearly a big star, you know. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. could have been, 
and and again, there's no reason he wouldn't have been. He's perfectly good, and he's he's like a good actor in things. He, he, I I like Dave Apple a lot. Yeah, I think he could easily have been a big star. William Forsyth as well is also in The Rock. So like only yeah. on, on, only three years before this, yeah, he was working with Nick Cage. Uh, in a very similar comic book movie, actually, he's um, flat top in Dick Tracy. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is like kind of any time you uh, a lot of the reviews for G Men from Hell. That's kind of where people like go. Oh, yes. Forsyth back 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 in the kind of Dick Tracy world, almost that kind of he's doing another like one of those films. Uh, is there any other connections you could find, uh, Nathaniel? I bet there is. I'm surprised more don't jump out at me. Um, but that was the first one that I saw. I was sort of worried I was going to get it wrong. I no. mean, Boosie must have been in. That's Boosie done that. So Boosie is also in Lost Highway with Patricia Arquette from 1997. Of course. But he has never been in any film with a Coppola family member, which is absolutely... Absolutely, unless I've missed it. If, you, if you're at home and you're... Oh, I can't think of any. Like, yeah. I feel like I was about to say, when I looked down the cast list, like, Boosie was the one that went, right, well, Boosie is in. And when you run through your little roller decks of movies, you go, can't think of one. <laughs> That's right. And then uh, an, an, another link is Frank McRae plays Meat Foreman in Rocky Two, which obviously stars Talia Shire. Um, and, yeah, there's, there, there's a lot more uh, of... Again, we'll we'll leave it off with one very tenuous uh, link, which is Robert Goulet's song "Pledging My Love" is in Mr. Wrong, which Jonathan Schwartzman is the DOP for. Which is a, <laughs> I think it's a film that's directed by Nick Castle. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, like a night. It's starring Ellen and I'm trying to think who the guy is in it. Uh, it will. Uh, I'm not going to think for too long, guys. Again, this episode will end up being very, very long. Uh, and another weird bit of trivia. One of the qu uh, quoted reviews on Wikipedia for this film is by uh, Nathan Rabin for the AV Club, who also hosts a Nicolas Cage-centric podcast titled Travolta Cage. And his review, like the quote they give on Wikipedia is, G-Men's bare-bones production values are forgivable, but its lack of wit and creativity isn't. So not a fan of this film, which um, leads me on to my scoring system for, for films in uh, Coppola Connections, which is what would be a perfect wine pairing for this film, a.k.a. is this a high-tier wine or is this a kind of off-license wine? I would say it's an off-license wine and it's entirely like it's not trying to be anything else i think it's an off-license wine or a couple of bottles of off-license wine is almost <laughs> the perfect like get get a deal if there's a deal a twofer <laughs> go for it um and and i think that's sort of the the spirit it's meant to be enjoyed in as well yeah. i think it's not i mean for a lot of it, there's nothing pretentious about it really. it's really trying to be yeah I would say, if anything, it, it it goes more onto the white wine side, just in the fact that it is, it's it's not it's not heavy. Last week's film was the conversation is very much a red wine film. Like, do you know what I mean? It's very like, oh, it's a lot to 
that and obviously there's that famous scene with the blood in the toilet which uh and um he brings over a bottle of wine to his girlfriend's house at the beginning of that film so it's a, a red wine connection there but uh obviously yeah this film and how much are you paying for this bottle of wine as you said two for how much is that two for? so i'm thinking it's probably going to be a tenner for two right you're thinking it's going to be like a kind of two for ten pound i reckon yeah yeah considering like i, I would say if you like you're not if this were a restaurant wine you're not turning over the page to that that second page of the expensive <laughs> stuff, are you? You're very but much. If you were Nicholas Cage, maybe he might. He might. Well. <laughs> he probably enjoyed that with a, a wine that that went into the thousands when he sat at home and watched it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he was a big. He was a big wine connoisseur. Well, he is still, and I think in his wild days of uh, spending money, he was spending ridiculous amounts of money on wine. This made me wonder for this podcast specifically. You wonder. Has Nicolas Cage watched this film? Yeah, I don't know. Really? I don't. I. I you very rarely hear him talk about his. I, that. That's that. That's something very. And we'll we'll we'll, we'll get on to. Yeah, we'll get on to Nicolas Cage. I reckon Nicolas Cage is probably like he's probably target demographic. Really. Uh, <laughs> I think he'd probably quite like it. So, uh, Nathaniel, would you recommend people? watch this film i think i am the worst person to judge it uh, <laughs> because i have the context of it but i think i'm trying to be really like objective about it i think it's pretty good like i i think it's a solid like i think it's quite a solid movie and for what i want out of it i'm like this film this i like it and i think it's really interesting it's a much more interesting film to me than it is to a lot of people, I suspect. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I was going to ask you because I was—I couldn't tell. I just felt so kind of close to it in a way. <laughs> I found it a very difficult film to judge. And so but I, I kind of understood straight away from you that it was like, right, it is, it is kind of impenetrable. I wondered <laughs> that when I was watching it because it's kind of like I kind of know what it is and I know what it was based on. I have a full context for it. And to me, it's still pretty, like, I think the problem I have with it is that thing where do, is this, it probably isn't. Is I think, I think it's a really interesting experiment, but maybe adapting comic books very faithfully isn't a good idea for mm-hmm. movie. And yet, yeah. as an experiment, it works in exactly the same way something like Sin City does for me. And it's sort of still fun in the same way a film like that would be for me. Um, but I don't know that it's a success at what, what it's doing. But I think it's a really interesting someone having a go and going, yeah, sure. Like, why not try that? At yeah. least once, you know, which and a film that predates since it. Well, as, <laughs> as for recommendation from me, I would say, like, put this middle of your list. Like, if, you, if you've got some classics to get through, like, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't bump them down. And obviously, you can watch this film for free on YouTube. Obviously, if you can rent it or buy it, like do that. Obviously, we, we're not we're not we're not promoting piracy over here. But like no. again, again, like get a few friends together. I'm not sure how people are watching films these days. Whether they're, I know Zoom parties and that are pretty big. Like yeah, and if you're a fan of the of the source material, then 
like Nathaniel, sure. I, I think it would definitely definitely work yeah. for people, right? And it's uh, um, I think I'm it's glad- fair to say if if it's on your list <laughs> and you can watch this and you go, well, I've never seen Apocalypse Now and I've never seen G Men from Hell, I'd probably watch Apocalypse Now. <laughs> but, but but yeah, if you've seen all those, yeah, it's a, I would say if you've heard this and any of it piques your interest and you have a context to what it's going to be like, and it sounds like you might enjoy that, then you might well enjoy it. And you <laughs> might get a lot out of it. Perfect. Well, um, so are the Coppolas, or Coppolas, I keep, I keep getting that wrong. It's, it is Coppola, isn't it? Are they the greatest film family of all time? I think so. Because when you, the others tend to be, I think they're the ones that have the most sort of spider's legs of, films going into other films mm-hmm. and they're also mostly other kind of big hollywood dynasty people are actors and lots of them have made very good movies but i kind of feel like probably like movie for movie and what you're getting with the coppolas they are i mean mm-hmm. i think you've got to kind of hand it to them and say they're the ones you wouldn't want to be without as a yeah. filmography well we're talking about being without leads me perfectly onto a question which is if you were to only keep one member of the Coppola family and you had to get rid of the filmography of every single other member which one would you choose uh you'd have to i think you'd have to keep francis's i mean if anything he's probably he probably produces half of sofia coppola's ones anyway so mm-hmm. i don't know if you get to keep them or not but you probably, but then you have all those films like, well, I guess you get American Graffiti if you have things like, yeah, his um, his filmography, and if you've got things he produced, you've got probably most of Sofia Coppola's films. Uh, you'll have Sleepy Hollow. You'll have, uh, I mean, he produces a lot, an awful, and certainly throughout the eighties, did an awful lot of producing as well. Paper Moon, I think, is uh, is produced by Coppola, I think. Yeah. So you get a lot of that. He has his hand in a lot of films of that era. When he was, you know, when he was, he was Francis Ford Coppola, you know, one of the biggest directors in the world. He really did have his hand in lots of pies. I think one of the missteps he made in uh, a person that he produced their films was Victor Salvo. So I think he produced Powder and Jeepers Creepers. Yeah, he did. He did. And, and, uh, And like probably not the horse to back, but uh, no. What a funny old thing. I wonder what what he saw in it. Yeah, it's a very, very, very bizarre uh, uh, avenue to take, especially even like... Beatles Creepers in the context of like horror movies is a kind of even in not a kind of you know a big kind of uh, uh, prestige genre like that. It's not even a heavy hitter. It's mm-hmm. not it's nearly. It's a perfectly kind of fine. I think arguably without Francis Ford Coppola making films as well, we wouldn't we wouldn't even have Star Wars. Star Wars wouldn't mm. exist because if he hadn't have known George Lucas and kind of like not bullied him or forced him, but like got him to make like kind of prodding him to make like uh, THX and stuff like that. Like the yeah, he, he wouldn't have probably gone. Oh no! Actually, I'm going to try this like popcorn thing. Like, do you know what I mean? I'm going to like, nick a like. I still like the sci-fi element. Ah, oh, Stevens doing something really interesting with Jaws. 
let's see if we can better that. Yeah. But I think, yeah. And, and again, we the same before that. This, the, the, I guess the the Lucasfilm thing is is like American zoetrope done no, again. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, done yeah. better, really, yeah. or done, or, or certainly more successful. Whether it's done better, it probably had slightly lower ideals than uh, American zoetrope did, but it was a successful version of of that. Yeah. In a way that American Zoetrope wasn't really ever didn't manage to be what it was supposed to be. And uh, we'll close out the conversation by I'm trying to figure out probably the greatest mystery in the Coppola family history, which is what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? I always think he's probably saying, "Do you think this is a bit of a cop out?" Like <laughs> I'm just. I, it's one of those. I think it's a thing that has its cake and eat. It's just a bit like it's like it's it both works in a kind of it's very kind of arch and a bit. Ah, <laughs> you, you don't actually know, and then you, but it always has that thing like, do you know? Mm-hmm. Like, do you have a definitive answer for this, or is it just a bit of a no one knows? <laughs> you don't know. Is it is it romantic? Is it not? Would it work? Would it not? It's that kind of. It doesn't answer any of the, the things in the. And and I think it's that kind of as an ending. I guess it works for the kind of movie it is because it's a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well done, well <laughs> done. But at the same time, it is always a bit like there's something quite unsatisfying about it as well. Yeah, I think it, I think it, it does have its cake and eat it a bit, which is a bit kind of. I think it's always been a bit of a cop out. And I can imagine them, the two actors, perhaps thinking, have we got an ending for this? And that is the ending. And so it might well be them saying, this is a cop-out. <laughs> and they've just caught this kind of little conversation of them, the two actors and going, that'll do. We'll just have that. We'll just have that. <laughs> Cut the mics. Cut the mics. <laughs> bury the sound. Bury the sound. That's a, that's a perfect answer, Nathaniel. Uh, well, yeah. Thank you very much for joining some dots and making some Coppola connections with me. My pleasure. My pleasure, anytime. once again to Nathaniel Metcalf for joining me on this journey and that's two votes for the Coppola family being the greatest film family of all time if you have happened to have seen this film and feel like me and Nathaniel missed anything or we got anything wrong please don't hesitate to get in touch which is on all the socials at Caged in Pod so that's Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd and Facebook or you can always send me an email which is cagedinpod at gmail.com And on all future episodes, if you've seen any of the films that we're going to be covering, please do send a nice quick 20 to 30 second audio clip of your thoughts on that film. As for next week's episode, I will be joined by Jonathan Foster of the amazing Podchild Cinecar to talk about 1976's Rocky starring Talia Shire. Next week's episode as well will be coming with some exciting news that 
I cannot wait to share with you guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you're listening to this right now. I've been Petros Patsilovas, your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. So be sure to keep it Coppola, and I'll catch you next time. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Droop Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.